your name we pray. Amen. Well before the religious leaders had hatched their plans to trap Jesus and to ultimately what? Crucify Jesus. Jesus was, of course, well aware of their hard hearts and their festering hatred towards him. And as we saw last week in verses 16 through 30, Jesus responded to their blind hatred with love and truth. And by the way, that's the way we're to respond to people's blind hatred is with love and truth. Expressing, uh, He expressed, as we saw last week, his submission to the Father and his relationship with the Father. But he also expressed the necessity of salvation. You didn't get salvation because you were born Jewish, or you were circumcised on the eighth day, or you were from a certain tribe, or you had kept the law. Remember Jesus uh, speaks to the rich young ruler, he says, all these things I've kept from my youth, which none of us have, right? So the necessity of salvation. But Jesus knows that with all of the truth that he's given, all the divine revelation that he's laid out, the religious leaders still don't believe in him, nor in anything he said. And yet, because he loves them, because he loves us, he outlines precisely what they are saying no to. Nobody could hear Jesus speak in this context and say, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that you're the only way to heaven. I mean, he's going to meticulously lay out four things that we'll look at this morning, precisely what they would be saying no to, what they had already been saying no to, the clear evidence they're, they're rejecting to their own eternal peril. And anyone that rejects the witness of Jesus that you know or I know or us ourselves, it's to our own eternal peril. But that's what love does. It warns. Did you know that? Love actually warns. A parent that never warns their kids doesn't really love their kids. Right? You, know, uh, you have to say no. This will harm you. This is harmful. It's certainly plenty of times we're, we're called to love people through encouraging them, building them up, helping them, consoling them, comforting them. But sometimes love calls to sternly warn, especially if no one else is willing to or even aware of the need to. And that demonstration of genuine love, when you do sternly warn sometimes, it's not always well received. Parents with kids, you know how this goes, right? Uh, it's not always well received when you sternly warn. Paul said in Galatians 4.16, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Now, people don't always want to be told the hard truth. And Jesus didn't hold back anything here. He told them, you're searching the scriptures thinking you have eternal life and you don't have eternal life. You don't know my Father. In the case of Jesus... And Paul says, I've become your enemy. These uh, religious leaders were already Jesus' enemy. Uh, yet he takes the time to speak arrows of truth right straight to their heart and hopes, and when we do give strong truth to people, it's in hope that they would come to their senses and Jesus is hoping that they would believe on him for salvation. Now by the way, if, um, if you love, if you're the person that loves to give really bad news, if you love to correct people, if you really love to give corrective words, if you love to give warnings to everybody, you can be sure that's not in love. If you really like enjoy that. But if you give bad news and you give corrective words and you give warnings against your flesh in obedience to Christ, which parenting can be hard that way, 
sharing the gospel to someone who you know has a wall that's as thick as the walls of Jericho and you know they don't want to hear it? Well, that is love. Just as Jesus submitted to the Father. He's doing, he's not rebuking them in this text out of disdain, but out of love. And again, uh, you'll know it's in love when we're sharing what the scriptures say. And we just say, hey, look, look, this is not my words. This is what the scriptures say. Can I share with you what this passage says? If you're taking notes this morning, you see our time in God's word. The fourfold witness of Christ. Now, sometimes you'll hear this referred to, some of your Bibles will probably say fourfold. Uh, so sometimes hear it referred as the fivefold witness of Christ. And if you say fivefold, well, Jesus himself plus the four that he outlines would be the fivefold. Uh, I could even make a case for the sixfold witness here because the Holy Spirit is speaking through all of these plus Jesus plus the four he outlined. But we, we call it the fourfold because Jesus outlines four specific things in this text outside of himself, but they all witness to himself uh, as to who he is. And just so we'll look at two kind of sections this morning. The first one this morning, if you're taking notes, I've titled A Unified Witness. So Jesus in these verses that we just read, which is basically 31 through 40, we see the kind of encapsulated unified witness. Uh, Why do I say unified? We can think of what Jesus outlines here in much the same way as we think of the totality of your Bible that you're holding in your hands, the Scriptures themselves. We rightly refer to the Scriptures, which are plural, we rightly refer to the Scriptures as the Word of God. But they're a plurality, right? We refer to all the Scriptures, which in fact, we call it the Word of God, but it's actually many words from God, right? It's not just a word, it's many words from God, delivered in 66 books, Uh, from approximately 40 different authors across 15 centuries of time. And we call it singularly the Word of God. And just as the Word of God was God-breathed by the Holy Spirit, the unified witness of Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit and four distinct voices. At least as he outlines it here, we have one unified voice, but four distinct voices, or four kind of legs to the chair, four pillars, if you will. Uh, Interestingly enough, not coincidentally, Uh, God, by His providence, gives us how many Gospels? The four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we have the fourfold witness of the Gospels. Here Jesus outlines a fourfold witness of Him being the Messiah in the presence of those that are there. Uh, Thus, again, so for the title, Bible scholars and theologians have often referred to this teaching and rebuke of Jesus here, rebuke by Jesus, as the fourfold witness, the four witnesses with a unified proclamation uh, that Jesus is the, the witness is this, that Jesus is the promised one sent from God. Now understand again who the audience is. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the religious leaders, the top level guys, the priesthood, the scribes, the Pharisees, the keepers and experts of the scrolls, the law of Moses. And so Jesus says right there in verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now he's not saying that of him. He knows his witness is true. He's saying because you guys know the law, you know that everything is established on two or three witnesses. And Jesus says, so I'm not here just to be my own witness, although he can. He's saying you know that two or three witnesses, you guys keep the law. 
you understand that the truth and validity of something is established by two or three witnesses. And by the way, Jesus already has his two or three because he has God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Whether we believe it or not, the witness is already validated. He's going the extra mile for them to see what they're rejecting, how much truth. And you would be surprised before you got saved how much truth you had rejected in your lifetime before you finally came to the truth, right? And so would people that we talk to. I've already read, I've talked to atheists who have told me they've read the whole Bible. Have you? I've had atheists tell me they've read it twice through. I'm like, read it again. <laughs> and this time with a soft heart, right? <laughs> so, and start in the book of John. It'd be a good place to start. But, um, but Jesus, he's already confirmed his witness, but he's going to enumerate for them four witnesses here, and it's going to subscribe to the law that they hold to. If you look, in your, uh, look on the screen there, uh, Deuteronomy 19.15 in the Old Testament, and you can see that was from Moses. They highly revere Moses, which Jesus is going to speak to. They love Moses. They wouldn't have loved Moses had they lived with him, but they did love him looking back, and so Moses wrote, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Jesus ends up re-quoting that in Matthew 18.16. Paul quotes this same passage uh, from the law in 2 Corinthians 13.1, as does the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.28. By the way, this does not mean that two to three people couldn't get together and lie about something. We know people have done that, right? People have lied. People have lied together. People have kind of set packs to lie. But remember that the law was given to Israel, and Israel was a nation that supposedly was under what? God. They had a theocracy and the mindset would be that it would be one thing for one person to lie to God, but for two or three to all get together and say, we're all going to lie to God, they would be that much more brazen against the Lord. And so it's kind of like to, in our own country, eventually we said we'd have people put their hands on the Bible, and they'd have to swear that unto God, take an oath. Now I don't think you even have to do that anymore. You can kind of like do this or do this or whatever you decide to do. But again, it was a safeguard in a fallen world. That's really what it was, a safeguard to have at least a protection from people lying. So you would really have to say, wow, I'm going to boldface lie against my neighbor. And you'd have to have another person would have to join you in that, and even maybe sometimes three. But it's noteworthy that the fourfold witness of Jesus, he cites twice the minimum, which is two witnesses, he gives four, and one more uh, than three. So we actually have plenty. Uh, Jesus is going to lay down a lot of evidence of what these leaders have been rejecting. It would kind of be like running four straight red lights and saying, I never saw a single one. You might miss one. You could miss two. But it's not likely you're going to miss the third and the fourth one uh, unless you're legally blind and you shouldn't be driving anyway. But that's a different story. So uh, beyond that, let's take a look at this witness of four. Uh, Jesus' witness here is pure and it's unassailable. When you look at the context, and, and we'll, we'll look at some uh, details that kind of bear this out, it's unassailable. I mean, this is like ironclad. Once Jesus lays it out, they either can say, we don't care anyway, we still don't like you, and we're not going to listen. But they can't say they weren't proven to be willful in their rejection of Jesus. Now the first one he lays out is uh, starts in verse 33, you've sent to John, he has borne witness to the truth, 
Yet I do not receive the testimony from man, but I say these things that you may, may be saved. Um, verse 35, he was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John. So we'll stop there. The first is, first witness is John the Baptist, who was the cousin of Jesus. Um, he was the forerunner, also called the forerunner, because he kind of paved the way. He was preaching before Jesus uh, came on the scene. We see John in chapter 1. Jesus, uh, we know, had the miraculous um, virgin birth. But John's birth was pretty miraculous as well. Would you guys agree? Uh, his parents were beyond childbearing years. They thought there was no chance they would have kids. And Elizabeth and John, uh, or Zacharias, were, were shocked uh, that God would give them a son, and not just any son. Uh, Jesus said there was none born like him of woman. So uh, like his father, John the Baptist was a Levite. This is kind of a review for those of you that have been through the whole study. But, uh, but God called him to be a prophet instead of a priest. And his whole prophet ministry was to do two things. One was to preach repentance, but two was to prepare the way and point the way to Jesus. Well, you could say three if you want to say prepare it, then point. But it was repentance, prepare the way, and point to Jesus. That was the entire ministry of John. And then he would actually lose his life, a martyr's death, before his cousin Jesus, who would then later lose his life with a martyr's death. Um, Pilate by one, Herod by the other. But his message of repentance, uh, it was powerful. It drew huge crowds and caused conviction to fall on many. And Jesus called John the Baptist a lamp. Interestingly, a lamp can't light itself. A lamp reflects light. A lamp, uh, you, someone has to light the lamp. And Jesus was the, was the light in John's lamp, and Jesus is the light in your lamp. And you can't light your own lamp. You can only receive light from Jesus. I can only receive light. It's like the moon can only receive light from the sun. For a time, the religious leaders enjoyed John's powerful messages. And especially they were thinking, oh man, this guy, he preaches with power. If he can introduce the Messiah to get rid of the Caesars in Rome, we're going to like this guy. And so for a while, uh, Jesus said, you, you kind of rejoiced in John's ministry because you had this idea that this could be the coming of the kind of Messiah you wanted, which was a Davidic king, someone that would sit on the throne. And they uh, really kind of looked forward to Israel being restored to the former glory, getting Rome off their backs. But of Jesus, John was not really trying to replace the Caesars in Rome. He said of Jesus, when Jesus was walking forward, remember he said, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world, not the Rome of the world, not the Rome taxation of the world, but the sins. But the religious leaders, they thought they were already righteous. They thought sinners were everybody else. Remember the man beating on his breast saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner? But the, you know, the, the Pharisees would look at him like, I'm glad I'm not like this wretched man. They already thought they were clean. They didn't need a redeemer. They wanted a king. They didn't need a savior. They wanted a sovereign ruler, but one that would actually keep them well entrenched in power as well. And when the religious leaders actually sent and went to John, they actually asked John about his ministry and what he thought about Jesus' ministry. Remember what John said. John said, you yourselves 
uh, bear witness, John said, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. Before him. Then the last straw, John called them a brood of vipers. And that didn't sit really well at all because, you know, uh, it was kind of okay for a while, but then John goes and calls them a brood of vipers in Matthew 3, 7, and John is pretty much rejected. They don't want any more of John. They're perfectly happy for Herod to take him away and, and take off his head. So Jesus says, all right, number one, you rejected the witness of John. Next up, Jesus goes on, but I have a greater witness than John's. Verse 36, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, there's one work that he hadn't finished yet, which one would that be? Raising up from the dead. He does a lot of miracles. The works to be finished would be until he comes up out of the grave. But he does a lot of amazing, supernatural things that would blow anyone's mind. The very works that I do bear witness that the Father has sent me. Uh, Jesus' works were self-explanatory. The miracles were things that only the power of God could do. You know, you see these faith healers on TV. If these guys were legit, then I would call them and say, I'll pick you up at the airport and take you straight to the hospital. We'll just clear that place out. No, 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 they have to come and, and, and give a big offering and, and then I'll heal. No, 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 that's not what Jesus did. He did not ask for any healing. He went straight and just started healing people right and left. Even people that were not thankful for it. Even people that weren't even saved. The works were self-explanatory. Remember Nicodemus' opening words to Jesus in his nighttime secret meeting with Jesus. He said in John 3.2, Rabbi, no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus was one of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus was one of the religious rulers. And he's like, it's, it's unquestionably fact that the power of God is on you. Who are you? That's what Nicodemus was asking. It's, no one can do these things. No one can heal people like you do. Remember the man at Bethesda? He wasn't sick for three days. He was lame for 38 years. 38 years. I mean, we've got some of you here that are just turning 37, 38. We have some of you way younger. 38 years. It's it's known in the whole community. This man cannot walk, has not been able to walk for 38 years. Remember, though, when Jesus healed the man, they didn't ask any questions about the healing. They said, who gave you permission to carry the mat? Right, right. They asked nothing about the healing. Right. Not a single thing. Who gave you permission to carry the mat? They didn't care that Jesus was healing people. And you know, Most of us, if we saw someone in our family that had been sick for five years, we would throw a party, a fiesta, that they were healed. We wouldn't say, who gave you permission to drive? It was obvious. Dr. J. Vernon McGee said this about the miracles of Jesus. There were not just a half dozen or even a hundred or two whom he had healed. There were literally thousands of people who he had healed. It was openly demonstrated. Nobody in that day, remember in that day, no one contradicted the fact that he healed. Even the leaders themselves, they didn't say the man wasn't healed. They said, who gave you permission to carry the mat? They knew the healing was real. His miracles were his credentials. His works bore witness that the Father had sent him. 
Jesus' miracles were irrefutable. Jesus goes on. Uh, the third witness that they had rejected is God the Father himself. He says, and the Father himself, verse 37, the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. Um, a couple, three things to consider when you understand what Jesus is saying here about the Father's witness. Um, number one, Jesus is witnessing of his own Father's witness. He's witnessing of his own Father's witness. Um, but they reject Jesus' witness of his own Father because his Father would say, like, how many of you have a dad? All of you, right? Okay. Okay, I, I, my, my dad's name is Robert. And I know where he was born. I know the year he was born. I know what he looks like. I can drive you over to his house. I was telling the first service, like, if I, if I ask you, any one of you, I say, who is your dad? And you tell me, here's my dad. Here's where he was born. He served in the military. I tell, and then at the end of all that, I tell you, that's not your dad. You look at me like I'm crazy. I tell you, that's not your dad. Jesus, tell, he's been telling them about his dad, and they say, that's not your dad. He's like, I can show you the house. I can show you everything. I can't show you until you believe me, but promise you, he's my father. But they don't believe it. So again, I would be telling you, you're lying. You tell me all this stuff. You ask me, and then I tell you about my dad, and you say, I'm lying. That's, they just wouldn't believe the witness that he had come from the Father. Well, so Jesus is actually witnessing of his Father's witness. Uh, second thing to consider here is the Father's witness and the Son's witness is perpetual in heaven before time, now, for all time. There's always the witness of God the Father and the Son. The fact that we can't see it because in heaven is irrelevant. It still is true. It uh, doesn't matter if you can see or believe in gravity. It's true whether you can see or believe it in it or not, right? Well, I can't see gravity, nor do I believe in gravity, therefore it doesn't exist. That's your choice, but lots of things will prove you wrong. Just walk off the side of a cliff that doesn't have a bridge, and you will prove it out. So um, the Father's witness is already settled whether they can hear it or not. He, he says, and you've not heard his voice. You've not seen his form, because that witness is up in heaven, but it still is valid. But Jesus goes on, and we understand that um, he had mentioned John the Baptist. The third thing to consider is the Father's voice was audibly given in the presence of the people in that time. Because when Jesus is baptized at the Jordan River, the Spirit descends upon Jesus, and the voice comes from heaven that says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So the voice of God, God takes and says, look, even that, you have the audible witness, even though God does not, he's not really required to give us any of that. His witness is already true. His witness of his son is there, uh, but he does audibly speak in Luke, 20, uh, Luke 3.22. I think I have it up on the screen there. Uh, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. But Jesus tells them point blank, basically to synthesize it for us, your rejection of me is a rejection of the witness of the Father. 
The fact that my father has spoken audibly there at the Jordan River, his witnesses in heaven anyway, and I'm telling you what he would say of me, but you say, no, that's not true. Hard-hearted. Remember in the Old Testament, uh, they love Moses. Uh, God would say to Moses, and sometimes Moses would say to God, they're a stiff-necked people. God would tell Moses, these are stiff-necked people. If I actually uh, hang out here too long, I'll consume them. This is God's conversation with Moses. I'm paraphrasing. If I hang out here long, I'm just going to consume them because they're stiff-necked. And Moses is saying, you know the people? They're stiff-necked. You know, sometimes he would refer back to God. You know they're stiff-necked. You know they're stiff-necked. And that's what these religious leaders, they're stiff-necked. You can give them all the evidence. This is Americans today when they argue over things that you can actually, now once people believe their own set of facts, you actually can give them the truth and they don't care. They do not care. Like I, then, then I don't care. Then I just move the goalpost. Mm-hmm. But you can't move the goalpost on God. They're still what they are, and that's His truth. And it doesn't really matter whether we uh, think anything otherwise. We're just rejecting the truth to our own peril. Uh, the last witness Jesus outlines here is the scriptures themselves, and I put it up here as the prophetic scriptures. He says, "You search the scriptures, and the reason why I say prophetic." All Scripture is God-breathed. It's all prophetic because it comes from the Lord, uh, but prophetic in the sense that it was all pointing to the Messiah. Uh, that the, the Tanakh, which is uh, Genesis through Malachi, uh, which they didn't have any New Testament. They only had the Old Testament. They didn't have the book of Acts. They didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They didn't have the epistles. That all comes after the resurrection. They only had the Old Testament Scriptures, the Tanakh. They had the Torah, and all the other uh, writings, the poetic, uh, but they did not have the New Testament that we're reading from here this morning. Nevertheless, Jesus says, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me, verse 39, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Um, Unbelievable, a sad commentary. They had all this Scripture and scriptural knowledge, but they didn't know the Lord. They could not see Jesus. Uh, You may have heard the Bible acronym uh, basic instructions before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. But the central theme of the basic instructions of the scriptures is Jesus. And it was in the law. Now I will admit it was a little more veiled in the Old Testament. It was harder to see, but with a soft heart came clear eyes. And that's what they did not have. They didn't have the they didn't have the soft heart. Um, the, the essential theme about Jesus is that Jesus is going to be the only one, as John says, behold the Lamb of God that does what? Takes away Caesar? No. Takes away the sins of the world. The whole reason Jesus was coming was to deal with sin, not to deal with the throne of Jerusalem. The throne will be dealt with eventually. Jesus will put his throne in Jerusalem. No matter what our leaders or any other ones, Jesus will someday, but that was not the first coming, was to deal with sin, not society, and put up his kingdom. That'll come. But it was all about salvation. And to miss, the entire, to miss Jesus is to miss the entire purpose of the Scriptures. Um, and the Scriptures, they're God's love letter to humanity. Amen. I'm glad he loved us enough to tell us the truth. We need to know that we're sinners. We need to know that we're wretched. We need to know that our righteousness is filthy rags. And we need to know that Jesus is willing to cleanse and forgive us if we'll come to him humbly. But he revealed in that first, even in the 
Old Covenant that the Messiah was coming, and then the New Covenant tells us all about the Messiah has come. That's the New Testament is showing us His coming. But they're actually standing in the New Covenant presence of Jesus. He's literally in their field of view. They can, they're hearing Him talk directly to them. They're actually talking to the Messiah that was prophesied in the Scriptures. But these religious leaders, they were deceived. They were blinded by religious effort. They really had in their mind that they were already righteous and they were teaching other people how to be righteous when they weren't righteous. They were full of all kinds of lust and hatred and all kinds of stuff. And they didn't have a, pers- they didn't have a soft heart for their personal sins. You and I cannot look at everybody else's sins. I hope that you, most of your prayer life is about your depravity, even after salvation. Lord, how am I still having this? How am I still this self-centered? How am I still? Jesus, change me. Wash me. Not to be re-saved, but to be sanctified and walk in maturity and newness of life. And so most of our prayer life, uh, in addition to praying and interceding for people, but we don't just pile on everybody else's sin. We look at our own. So then we can actually take specks out of people's eyes and things like that. They couldn't. They had lumbers in their own eye but could not see that they were lost. Completely, they knew a lot of Bible and Scripture, but they were completely lost. They studied the Word nonstop, but could not see Jesus. But we have a, we have a difference in Jesus' disciples. Um, remember, when Philip found Nathaniel, we see that they could. They were, they were not learned men in, in, in the level of the Pharisees. They did not uh, have all the education pedigree. And what does it say? Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have, we have found him of whom who? Moses. Remember they revere Moses. Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus the son of Joseph. How was it that these sinners and publicans could see that Jesus was the very one written in the, t- in the uh, scriptures but these religious leaders couldn't see it? Because when the heart is soft, God opens up the scriptures to us. If you come with a soft heart, God will reveal everything you need to know to be saved and to be filled with the Holy Spirit and grow. If you come with a hard heart, God says He gives grace to the humble, but He resists the proud. If you have a hard heart, the Scriptures will stay dark to you. And you'll think the encyclopedia is just as as anointed and God-breathed as the Scriptures. But once you say, Lord, my heart is soft, then God will open up the floodgates and the Scriptures will make sense to you. And not just make sense to you, they will bring you under, Lord, have mercy upon me. They'll make you even softer than when you came in soft. Last thing we'll look at this morning starts in verse 41, which I've titled an unflinching warning. Verse 41, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you. This isn't a compliment. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. In other words, I tell you I'm from my father. You say, no, that's not your dad. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. This is just like our country. We'll receive men. Uh, Every four years we get all fired up. Another awesome dude running for office, you know, and we'll receive men. And God's like, the whole country, you don't need another man. You need me. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the, whole, the only God. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses in whom you trust. He's speaking directly. They, they revere Moses. 
They love Moses. They worship Moses. And Jesus is saying, Moses, Moses accuses you, by the way. For if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote about me. Oh, this is oh, preposterous to them. Blasphemy. Moses didn't write about you. We don't see the name Yeshua anywhere. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The totality of Jesus' witness and rebuke and warning is akin to a prosecuting attorney laying out an airtight case to the accused prior to and uh, outside of the court date and just urging, urging the, the accused, look, you will absolutely 100% be convicted. There's no question about it, except the plea. You're, there's, you're not getting off. We got you on camera. <laughs> you, are, you are not getting off except the plea bargain. And in their case and in our case, the literal plea is to humbly plead guilty. Say, Jesus, I am guilty. They should be saying this. I've said this. Many of you, uh, maybe all of you have said this. Lord, I'm guilty of my sin and my unbelief, and I'm putting my faith and trust in you. Because obviously unbelief is sin. But unbelief is what keeps us from being saved. All of our other sins, all the other sins that we've committed, whether they be lust or lying or cursing or whatever, I mean, those sins, unbelief is the one that holds up all the other sins from ever being forgiven. Because if we believe on Jesus and believe that he would cleanse us, but they didn't, that they're, all their other sins can't be forgiven because they're still stuck at the gate of unbelief. They refuse to believe that Jesus is their only way. They, they, they do trust in Moses. They think they're almost many Moseses. We're like a mini Moses group. We're, we're, we're almost as cool and awesome as he was, just not as ancient. But they had to see that the soul sufficiency is in Jesus' testimony. It's in his perfection. And ultimately it will be in his blood and in his resurrection. All of which we now see in hindsight. We have this cross over here on the wall. It's a symbol. We look back to the cross. We look in hindsight at these things that are based on the apostles' writings and the New Testament writings. But to reject Jesus as they were doing and they did do, the religious leaders, before the cross and before the resurrection was still willful blindness. His disciples saw him in the Old Testament. But these men who lived in the Scriptures couldn't see it. Let's not forget, though, by our nature, all of us in this room, all of you watching online, by our nature we tend to tell ourselves things that satisfy exactly what we prefer to believe. Right? We can even find a verse for it if we really try hard. We'll take it way out of context. But uh, and find a verse for it to, to back up what we want to believe. And we can convince ourselves of our own excuses, but we can't convince God that, that we're convinced. The words of James 1.22 are appropriate here. James says, deceiving ourselves. Deceiving ourselves. We don't really need someone else to deceive us. We can deceive ourselves. Even, by the way, after you've been born again, you can deceive yourself into something you, you just want to do. Even though you know it's not in the will of God. Even though you know it's not in the Word of God. We have a different problem in our age. Uh, in the re religious leaders' age that Jesus was talking to, these men actually knew the scrolls. They had memorized big passages. 
Uh, they could read Isaiah 53 and not see Jesus. Can you imagine that? A lamb led to the slaughter. Matter of fact, when I've been in Israel a couple times, I've asked uh, Jewish people there that are strong in their faith, what do you think about Isaiah 53? They won't even talk to me about Isaiah 53. My rabbi's not allowed, we're not allowed to talk about Isaiah 53. Well, that doesn't mean it's not there. You can ignore it if you want to, but it's pretty clear that, that this the suffering Messiah that you need for the salvation of sins, because you, you can't just have a king. You need a spotless lamb. John said, behold the lamb, not behold the king. The king comes in the second coming. But we have a problem today where people don't know the word of God at all. And even in the church, people, uh, they just don't have time for it. I put this on my timeline uh, earlier this week. Um, and you can see it's from another pastor. He says, uh, the average person reads over 265 social media posts, emails, and text messages every day on their phones and tablets. Proof positive we really do have time to read our Bibles every day. We choose to use our time for lesser things. We all have time. We, we make our own excuses about things. Now I'll tell you, I would gladly go back um, I would gladly go back to the pre-cell phone, smartphone days. I remember life before Blackberries. I remember it before Palm Pilots. And, and I knew where it was going, because I worked in big tech at that time, and I knew where it was all headed. I, I, I was seeing our future videos. I knew where it was all going, but boy, I would love to go back to the world that wasn't connected with instant communication and ubiquitous Wi-Fi and cell phone networks and social media and anytime, anywhere, and you can watch your direct TV, TV or Verizon anywhere on your phone, in traffic, why people run, run through red lights now and all that stuff. Uh, remember a time when people didn't walk around like this? Remember those days when people didn't walk around just like this? All over the place. Doesn't matter, your DMV, the grocery store, anywhere. Uh, but I have news for you. Even in the 60s and through the mid-70s, when people still had black and white TVs, you kids don't know about this, but there were really black and white TVs. I had one growing up, black and white TVs, and people actually read newspapers. And they read them cover to cover. Uh, comics, a whole nine yards, and they read all these things. But you know, even then, people couldn't find time to read the Scriptures, even when they had all that stuff. And then came the 80s when we got introduced to cable television. We'd never seen cable TV. Uh, but cable TV came. You didn't have to like mess with the antenna on your TV anymore, which you kind of, if you point it towards this way, uh, you could get the signal. You didn't have to do any of that stuff anymore. Then you had cable TV and magazines. Everybody had like a ton of stack of magazines and Time Magazine, uh, Sports Illustrated, National Geographic, all that good stuff. We had all that stuff. And uh, still nobody could find time to read the scriptures. Then we had dial-up PCs, and um, you know, you had a modem. That's how you got you got mail coming in and stuff like that. And you, it was almost as slow as the regular postal service. Um, but people still couldn't find time for the scriptures. And today's technology is definitely more addictive. There's no question about that. Uh, but many people that ha don't find time in the scriptures, the issue's still us. It's always been us. It's us in the 70s, it's us in the 80s, it's us in the 60s, it doesn't matter. Um, many ignore the scriptures mainly because they just have no interest in it whatsoever. They don't care. They don't want to be corrected because they want to be self-deceived. And so in America we have the opposite issue. It's not like people are devouring the Bible and still rejecting Jesus like the religious leaders. 
Now people have a Bible, they just refuse to open it. So we have a different problem, but the same heart issue. Does that make sense? Same heart issue, just a different uh, twist on it, if you will. For the religious leaders in Jesus' day, the irony of their willful blindness is they did live in the Scriptures. They did know a lot of verses. They did know uh, a lot, and that's why they revered Moses. They could quote a lot of Scriptures about Moses. They didn't have the American issue of neglecting the Word of God. It's become common. But they still couldn't, or rather wouldn't, see Jesus in the scriptural words they were reading. Uh, they could read, for example, Genesis 18 of the Lord appearing in bodily form to Abraham just before the destruction of Sodom. It says the Lord appeared to Abraham and he actually cooks Jesus a meal. It's a called a Christophany. It's a pre, uh, pre-coming of Christ appearance of Jesus. They couldn't see Jesus there. They could read Exodus 24 when the, uh, when the Moses and the elders, they see God standing there on the mountain. They couldn't see Jesus. Uh, they, could re- they could understand, though, that uh, from Exodus 33, that Moses was told that he could not see the face of God and live, and yet it also says that Moses talked face-to-face to God, but he couldn't see the face of God. But if he comes in a visible form, then Abraham and Moses could see uh, but Moses saw and he understood the coming of Jesus. He, he wrote, uh, Jesus said, he, he said, Moses wrote about me. Uh, it's why Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews says, looking back at the life of Moses, the writer of Hebrews says that of Moses esteeming the riches of Christ as greater than the treasures of Egypt, he looked towards the reward. It's amazing that Moses didn't know Yeshua, but he looked towards him. And he believed in the Son of God coming. I, I believe there was a lot of things revealed to Moses that were rather unique. Remember, he spent 40 days on the mountain without food or water. Even many rabbinical writings believe that Moses was caught literally up into heaven for those 40 days. Whether that's the case or not, we won't know until we get to heaven. We do know God revealed to him things that very few people have ever seen. But he wrote about the coming of the Messiah. How do we know that? Well, he said it in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is referencing this among other passages, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, capital P, like me from the midst of your brethren, him, capital him, you shall hear according to all that you desire of the Lord your God. In other words, Moses is saying, one greater than me is going to come from God who is going to be the Messiah. John the Baptist, Nathaniel, Philip, the others, they saw Christ as the Messiah, but the religious leaders saw a man that needed to be persecuted and killed. They didn't see a Messiah. They saw a man that had to be stamped out and destroyed. So the warning from Jesus was clear though. They trusted in Moses, but Jesus is saying, Moses trusted in me. You're trusting in Moses. Moses is trusting in me. It's no wonder that Moses, along with Elijah, is the one that appears with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses is standing there. Why? Because Moses was always looking to Jesus, subservient to Jesus, so he's standing there to minister to Jesus before the cross, him uh, and Elijah there. Uh, But they would have taken another Moses. They did not want the Messiah that God had sent. They wanted a Messiah in their own making. He came in his father's name, yet he warns that if another man comes in his own name, him they'd receive. And someday the whole world will receive the Antichrist who will come in his own name, and even the nation of Israel and many of the Jewish leaders are going to sign a pact with the Antichrist, not realizing they're making a deal with the devil. 
that he's going to come in his own name. But they'll, in other words, they'll receive the false Christ. That's going to happen, just like the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Jesus said that would happen. They're going to receive a false Christ, but not receive the real Christ. Now, many Messianic Jewish people, which I'm friends with, a number of them have come to Christ, praise God for that, just like the apostles themselves. But these religious leaders, they were already under delusion, so they're ready for strong delusion because they are literally hearing truth and rejecting it. And by the way, for those of you online or here, the more you reject truth, the more delusional you become. And you can believe anything. You're set up for the following of an antichrist which will eventually come. Uh, but to kind of come to a close here, uh, Jesus doesn't beg for their approval. He doesn't beg for their belief. On the other hand, they do desperately need Jesus. They just don't know it. They don't know they need him. Many people don't know how desperately they need Jesus. And there's a great danger of knowing about Jesus but not knowing Jesus. Mm -hmm. To be inoculated from the truth, to, to knowing a lot. Of, yeah, I can quote John 3.16. Every time I watch Monday Night Football, I see it right there on the screen. Yeah, I, I know it really well. You know, God's love the world. I've, I've witnessed to many people that quote back to me a lot of gospel that I can tell. Literally, I've witnessed to people while I'm talking to them about the gospel, they're cursing the whole time. While I'm talking to them, they're telling me that they're a follower of Christ. I'm like, you know you got to read the rest of the story here. You will be changed from the inside out. Being inoculated, hearing it often like Sundays, sitting under Sunday preaching, maybe reading a few verses here and there without being changed by repentance actually makes you kind of harder to your need, to really see where your need really is. We can know lots of things about the Word and a whole lot about Jesus and still not know Him. Jesus himself said at the end of the age, he'll say to many, depart from me, I never knew you, even though they claimed to worship him, they claimed to know him. Some will even claim that they even did miracles for him. It's in Matthew 7, 23. I will declare to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Um, very sobering, sobering message. I want to uh, close with, um, this was from a pastor last Sunday. Uh, just a couple states away from us, um, and I thought it was really, really sobering, um, but beautiful at the same time. He said, uh, five weeks ago, our church really started taking prayer more seriously, and I hope that our church continues to become more and more in uh, just a praying church. Wednesday nights are devoted strictly to prayer. We've been confessing sins and praying for revival, which we are as well. This week was hard, intense warfare. It always is when you decide to go all in with Jesus. This morning a 70 plus year old deacon came weeping and gave his life to Christ. 70 plus year old deacon. I don't know how many years he served in the church. Um, we don't have any 70 plus year old deacons, so you guys are safe at least on that one, but um, uh, all of our deacons are younger than that. Um, but you know, it, it just shows you there's a difference between religion and church life and being born again. There's, lots of people have a religious church life. I, I've met many people say, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a Methodist. You know, it's like, show me that verse in the Bible. You know, you're not going to, there's not a Methodist verse, it's not a Presbyterian verse, there's not a Calvary Chapel verse. You're not saved because you go to a Calvary Chapel either. So none of those things. Um, but Again, if, if there's a repentance, there's an inward change. 
and you love Jesus now, and you love the things of Christ. And by the way, if we're truly saved, we will have a church life. That's, that, we do have a church life. But your church life doesn't make you saved. You have a church life because you're saved. But you also have an outside the church life where you see the fields are white into harvest, and you're a witness where you go. You're not like the honky-tonk you know, country music Christian, you know, six days a week, and then uh, I, I kind of sober up just in time for Sunday morning. You know. And you, I've actually met people that are deacons right here in the Richmond area that live that way when I was in the business world. I, I had guys that were deacons that I work with, and, and oh man, some of the stories were like, even my coworkers one time said, there's no way. And my unsaved coworkers said to this one guy one time, they said, uh, we know Tim's a deacon, but there's no way you can be a deacon. <laughs> there's just no way. Uh, just, it's impossible. But the bottom line is this. When we believe the witness of Jesus and repent at his feet, he changes us on the inside out. And we're not stuck at that gate of unbelief. And they were stuck there at that gate of unbelief. And I believe, you know, this uh, deacon uh, a week ago uh, comes to Christ. Uh, But it underscores also for us, by the way, as a church, to continue to grow in prayer. And not just get our knees on the Sunday mornings like we do, but you begin on your knees at home. And, and I hope our Wednesday night in June, I hope we pack this place out and we do pray together for a revival and that we see it. Uh, but as we come to a close, how about us individually? Um, maybe we can now describe the fourfold witness Christ. Maybe you could actually say, yes, I think I got this down. It was, it was John. Uh, then it was uh, the miracles, or the God the Father. Then it was the miracles. Then it's the scriptures. I, that was the four, right? Plus the Holy Spirit, plus Jesus. If I want to go five or six, I can do that. Uh, but I hope we can. But have you trusted in Christ that the witness is actually coming through you? Not just be able to kind of intellectually talk about the witness of Christ, but that you are a witness because the witness of the Holy Spirit is stamped on the inside of your heart and you, you actually just speak forth from the Holy Spirit working in your life. That's what God intends to do. Are we inside the structure of the church or are we actually the church? Actually the church because we're actually fitted in by Christ through the work of repentance. Is Christ your Savior, your pastor, and your shepherd. I might pastor the church, but Jesus is the pastor of the church. And bottom line, he's the Savior, he's the shepherd. Let's close in prayer. Father, we we just come before you once again. And we're so thankful, Jesus, that you don't flinch in the words you give us. You give us straight, complete, pure truth. But Lord, you give it to us in love and in a desire that we would be saved. You you said, Lord, that you desired to give salvation, life. You said to these religious leaders they were not willing to come to you that they might have life. Lord, uh, in this room, Lord, I know many of us have come to you and have found eternal life. But Lord, even if there's one even if there's one that's still here, maybe, maybe they serve in some capacity, maybe they've been coming to church for a long time, maybe they're watching online. Lord, if there's one that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, if they've been stuck at the gate of unbelief or resistance or stiff neck, uh, that they would yield and give themselves 
surrender. You said if anyone falls upon the rock, they'll be broken. But if the rock were to fall on them, they'll be crushed and ground into powder. Lord, we want to we have soft hearts that we see you for who you are and that you change us from who we are. 